hello, hello. This is from 78, episode number 009. And uh, what you're about to hear, if you continue listening, is an edited conversation that I had with Chris, uh, who is one of the four hosts of the Regrettable Century podcast, a podcast which is wonderful if you're not listening to it. I think that you should uh, totally, at some point, very soon, you know, use some kind of technology to find that podcast. Easy to find, just search for The Regrettable Century. And uh, if you're into revolutionary politics, Marxism, in particular Marxism, which is of that uh, gothic slash romantic slash um, dialectically pessimistical strain, it's a really great podcast for that. Um, so yeah, that's it. Anyways, uh, let me tell you a little bit about this. I I did this interview with Chris, and normally when I interview people, I try to have the interviews sort of be cut in half, where we spend half the time talking about ghosts, which are things from people's pasts, which are continuing to haunt them in their present, and specters, which are things from their future, things that aren't here yet, that are are haunting them in their present. However, uh, things got away from me in this particular interview, and you know, I, I asked Chris about ghosts, and you know, we went down a lot of different, um, for me anyways, interesting conversational kind of like side paths. And as a result, uh, we ended up talking for like an hour and a half and we never actually got to specters. And so at the end of the interview, I say to Chris, you know, maybe at some point in the future, we can sit down and talk about those. And what you're hearing here is just like an, an edited version of the first half of the conversation. Now, two more things that I want to talk about. So first thing, if you're interested in hearing the unedited version of this conversation, that's something you can do if you support the show on Patreon. Uh, no matter what level you support the show at, lowest level, highest level, everybody gets the same rewards. That's being done so that people who don't necessarily have a whole lot of money to toss towards the the things that they enjoy, like this podcast, uh, while well, you get the same things that people who do happen to have a lot of money to toss at the things they enjoy. Uh, it's not one of those things where if you have more money, you get more stuff. I'm trying to avoid doing things that way. So that's the first thing. Second thing, uh, because this interview was fun for me and because it got away from me in the way that it did, and we ended up talking for like 90 minutes without even getting to something, I've been thinking a lot about the format of the show. You know, there's times where I do a show and it's just me talking into a microphone like I'm doing right now, and that's what the whole show is. And there's other times where I'm talking with other people, and uh, both are really enjoyable to me. And I'm trying, uh, but but be that as it may, I think that I might need to play a little bit more with the format of the show. And I'm just saying that now, and I don't have a plan for it. I don't have uh, something that I'm anticipating doing. But I'm saying this because, uh, I don't know, if anybody has any ideas that you'd like to toss my way, I'd love to hear them. You can email me from 78 podcast. That's F R O M number seven, number eight podcast at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, we're going to see how things kind of continue to go into the future. Uh, I don't have much of a plan for the podcast. It's one of those things that I do because I like doing it and, uh, we'll see what happens next. So having said all that, let's jump into my interview with Chris from The Regrettable Century.
So do I, does, does my sound, is my sound good? Um, yeah, if you don't mind, just I was just going to do a level check real quick here. If you okay, could okay, tell cool. me something, you know, whatever you want. You can talk about a commute. You can talk about what you ate for lunch. Um, and I'll monitor the level and make sure it sounds good. Well, um, okay, I live now in my hometown. It's kind of small. And uh, they don't have, they never, until recently, never had any good coffee shops. And now all of a sudden there's a ton of them that are opening up. And there's one that I really like. And I'm planning on moving away soon and I'm actually really going to miss it. So today I went and I had a, you know, a, a split a, a pour over with a friend of mine and uh, thought about how much I'm going to miss this coffee shop. Oh, okay, cool. All right. Yeah. That sounds actually pretty good. Now I'll just check my level here, make sure I'm good. And that looks okay. Well, anyways, yeah. Why don't I kick it over to you? Um, what would you like to say about yourself, about what you do, um, about your life, what's on your mind, your work, anything at all? Well, my work is, uh, I'm definitely one of those people that can say I'm not defined by what I do because what I do is boring and stupid and I hate it. And I'm actually going to, I, I just quit my job actually. So I don't do anything currently, <laughs> but I was working for an insurance company and I hate it. And I quit my job cause I'm going to go back to grad school. Uh, so that's what I'm doing now. I want to go back to grad school and, uh, eventually get back, get, get into teaching, uh, either, you know, finish my master's degree, which I'm almost done with. Or, um, you know, maybe eventually go get my PhD. I don't know. Uh, academia is kind of a, a dead end for those of us who graduated after the crash. So um, I don't necessarily know if I want to do that. But what I do in the meantime to sate my uh, intellectual curiosity and need to think things out and talk about them is I host the Regrettable Century podcast, which is a Marxist podcast. But um like you mentioned, uh, we are a dialectical pessimist and we are dialectical pessimists in our orientation. And it's pretty cool that we linked up with you because I think that the way that you approach dialectical pessimism is from a, a sort of a psychoanalytical point of view. Yeah. And um, the way that we have approached it is from a very on a much like larger level as a, uh, a political point of view, which also sort of se- to it, is is not is not separate at all separate at all from mm-hmm. the psychoanalytical point of view right so and i think that that's pretty cool that we can we can uh, mesh those two approaches yeah so i mean uh regrettable century podcast uh, is what i do uh outside of just you know slave away in the salt mines mm-hmm. and uh yeah i live in texas that's about it yeah i don't i'm not a very interesting person outside of my uh political opinions i don't think <laughs> you know you, you mentioned something a little bit ago though that i i wanted to ask you about which is you said you're going back to grad school so when if i heard that right that implies that you were there and then you, you left and now you're going back um, right um grad school to me is uh something that okay okay so starting from the beginning i for as long as i can remember i wanted to be a historian and i i went my uh, whole life just preparing for that i went to i went to school i got you know in my i went to school when i was younger and then dropped out and i didn't get very good grades and then i came back as an adult probably when i was like 26 27 and then i went to school seriously and i brought my gpa up from my uh you know my junior college gpa two point whatever to being a uh, 3.8 by the time i graduated and i 
applied to all these colleges and for graduate school, I got into every single one that I applied for. And I went to the best one on my list, which was the Catholic University of America, which was uh, the number one choice, my number one choice, because it had the best possible program for studying medieval church history, which is what I wanted to study. So I got in, I went to that grad school, I went for a year. And then for a year two, it turns out I had, uh, my funding wasn't renewed. Mm. So um, I, it was, you know, $60,000 a year to go there. And so I couldn't finish. So I just got super depressed. Um, I dropped out of grad school and I started trying to get a normal job. And so that's what I've been doing for the past five years is uh, hating my life because I didn't finish grad school. So now I'm finally going back. Are you still going to study medieval church history? Um, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to study medieval history more generally. Um, I don't know what I want to write my thesis in yet. Um, I hope to figure that out when I get back, but I do want to continue studying medieval history because I've got a lot of training in it already. Mm. I've taken like five years of Latin and paleography courses and uh, it built up an enormous store of uh, medieval historical knowledge. Um, But so I'm going to continue studying that. I just... As far as what I'm going to focus my thesis on, I don't know yet. Well, what's interesting to me about the medieval university is um, that in the Italian schools, the, the model was very much so um, one that, of where things were governed by the students and they would choose their professors uh, and mm. they would negotiate the professor's fees with the professor and um, they had a lot of power, which is interesting. And then I think, I, I believe it was the, it's been quite some time since I studied this. I'm very rusty with my medieval knowledge, uh, but um, there's the other model would have been the more top down model. And I think that was the University of Paris model. If I remember correctly, and that is the route that European universities ended up going. And you get this gigantic bureaucracy that's built up around the university, and that model ends up winning out. But if I remember correctly, I think that I remember my professor anyway really valorizing the the Southern European uh, European uh, university model, and always talking about how much better it was than the university we were going to then, um, because medievalists tend to do that. They tend to be uh, incredibly romantic about the time period uh, or certain aspects of the time period, not the time, like time period as a whole. One of the things that I think is the most interesting about the European universities is the way that there was very similar to now a very town versus university mentality. Yeah. But back then it would be like the students would form like gangs to be able to like, get in fights and protect themselves from the, the townspeople who hated them. And mm. it was very violent, but of course it's the medieval, <laughs> it's the medieval period. So a lot, lots of fights, lots of killing of students and townspeople. And it, and they almost had a, uh, a sort of um, like, they didn't have immunity, but they almost had immunity because of their, their station. Like, Cause the universities are all run by the church, of course. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the whatever happens to the university would be uh, governed under church law and mm. not under the town law. And that was always a source of conflict. 
So, I mean, yeah, there are some good things about the medieval university, but there are also like, you know, a lot of really bad things. Like, But uh, yeah, that's actually, I, I think about that all the time. And I think about how, uh, I think that, that if we, if we um, valued the idea of the bottom up university a little bit more, like mm. what our universities would look like nowadays. And uh, it, I think that, you know, it could have, it could have gone another way and it could, it could be a lot better. It could have, with the the material circumstances that exist on the ground now, if we had an ideas of bottom up universities that we held on to, and f- put that through the filter of the Enlightenment and you know the social struggles of the the past couple hundred years, that we could have these wonderful like thriving democratic bodies, and instead of what we have now, which is the exact opposite. That seems to be different, right? Like now, I think universities are see. Uh, C- see each other you know is is competition and they're they're competing not necessarily i mean they they compete along academic lines right like they have the best programs and whatever um Mm -hmm. but i think they they compete a lot more along economic lines right that there's these these ideas that universities need to you know uh be run like a business they need to have a a profit and loss sheet and you have to have more profit than loss and so on and so forth and those those sorts of things end up driving a huge amount of the decisions that the universities are, are making. I'm really curious what might happen if um, in some way, and, and I guess this is what I, I imagine there was more of this in the medieval time. Uh, if people just saw, you know, universities and, and what universities produced as a public good, right. Uh, as something that was worthwhile because it's, it's, it's good to take smart people and try to give them, the the resources they need to be smart and think about stuff and produce uh, interesting you know science and literature and art and uh, whatever else they're they're producing um, as a public good right uh, I, I guess I imagine like the College of France right now is an institution that maybe still works that way right I mean it's a a state sponsored institution that has their professors there to to think and the state enables them to do so. And you got to be a rock star intellectual, you know, to, to work at that institution. But I can't think of other places that are, are doing that through a university system currently. Well, I mean, I think that uh, even in this country, to a certain extent, that's the way we used to think of universities. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the idea of the classical education, right, the liberal arts education is that the liberal arts are the arts necessary for the maintenance of liberty, right? You mm-hmm. have to know rhetoric, you have to know literature, science, mathematics, and, you know, you have the whole, you know, the, the liberal arts that you have to understand in order to be able to be a well-rounded functioning member of society. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that they got that wrong, you know, as, as much as you want to, <laughs> as much as we want to talk about how, how backwards the the society that produced the founding fathers were uh, was. I mean, that's not one of the things that they got wrong. I mm-hmm. think that everyone should have a, access to this education to be a well-rounded functioning member of society. Of course, not everyone has to go and take advantage of the education. Mm-hmm. But I think everyone needs to have access to it. And um, And I definitely think that the people who are making decisions that are important decisions need to be well-versed in history. And it couldn't hurt to have a little bit of rhetoric Mm-hmm. you know, and literature and to understand the value of things that aren't monetary. Uh, this is the other thing that I'm noticing is that the universities now are seen as job training, right? That that's right. primarily what they do is they, they enable people to acquire a set of knowledge and skills that they can then use to, to sell on a market, you know, and it isn't about creating that, that broader appreciation or if that is a project, it's very much a secondary project to the 
idea of rendering one's mind and body marketable uh, so that you well, can sell yourself. I mean, I'm slightly younger than you. Uh, I was born in 81. So I'm in that uh, uh, exennial or whatever. Yeah, exennial. Right? That's what I, I hear people calling it now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, always, I was always told, and I'm sure you were too, it doesn't matter what you do. Just go to college because you become a better person for it. And then you learn your job. You learn your job training when you're on the job. Mm-hmm. You know, you should get a degree in whatever you want. And you can be anything you want. All you got to do is just get out there and get your degree and go. Mm-hmm. Of course, I did that. And, you know, my first job whenever I got out of college was open, working overnight at a, uh, at a coffee shop, mm-hmm. which is interesting because what I did before I went to college was work during the day at a coffee shop. Oh, wow. Okay. And I actually made more money. Uh, before I went to college, when I got out of college, I was making about like about $10,000 a year less than <laughs> before I went to college. Uh, and my buddy who never went to college and just stayed working the, I trained him at the coffee shop that we worked at was my manager. Mm. And you know, he was, <laughs> he was, he was the, <laughs> like the head roaster of some, uh, some coffee shop in Austin. And uh, you know, and I was thinking, damn, I went to college so that I could come out and, do the same job but a worse version of it and make less money and work for the guy I trained mm-hmm. you know <laughs> yeah wow but uh yeah so that that was the um the job market that I graduated into because I graduated in 2010 or 2011 2012 I don't know something like that 2011 I think I graduated in 2011 um even though I was born in 81 because I didn't go to school until later mm-hmm. so economically I'm a millennial, like smack dab in the middle of being a millennial because I entered into the post, um, you know, great recession job market Mm -hmm. out of college. And I have the enormous amount of student debt to show for it. Yeah. And of course, the inability to get a job that will allow me to ever pay it back. This is that, that seems like a good transition point. One of the the ways the things I ask people when they are on this show is um, I ask them about ghosts and specters. So ghosts are the things from your past that continue to, for whatever reason, kind of haunt you. Uh, they're not a part of your life currently. They're they're gone. You've lived through that. You're not living through it anymore. Um, but even though it's gone, it's still something. I don't know that you think about a lot. Uh, maybe you dream about it. Maybe it it comes up and makes you mad or, or makes you sad in the present uh, and all that. So it, what would you say for you are the ghosts that are haunting you in your present? Well, um, the sense of community I used to feel as a younger person is mm. definitely a ghost. Like my friends, my group of friends that I had when I was in high school and even for the first you know, decade out of me being uh, after I got out of high school, we just had, I had this t- tight knit group of friends, like a real community. And we lived all over Texas or all over the United States, but we all, you know, were still in contact with each other. We would meet up, 
at you know shows like because I was it, I grew up in the, the punk rock and hardcore scene, mm-hmm. so we would meet up at shows and festivals out of town, and uh, it had a real tight knit group of people around me. And you know, I, even further back, thinking of church, you know, the, the the group of people I was around in church, and then my families before my grandparents died, uh, we would always meet around that you know that family unit. And if being parts of clubs when I was younger, just having a real tight knit sense of community and several circles of community that all overlapped with each other. And then um, that is a, that is definitely a ghost that, that I think about all the time that is just gone now. And I think it's gone for almost everyone that mm-hmm. those, those communities don't exist anymore um, for the most part. And I guess people who still go to church all the time, you know, uh, they probably have something like that. But for me, that's that's something that I really miss, and it's something I think about all the time, and it actually informs my uh, my politics a little bit, because I think I would like to see a world where we rebuild those communities and we stop living such atomized lives, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, so that's definitely one, and I think the big one that just haunts me every single day that I think about all the time is that I was accepted into the best graduate school in the country and one of the best in the world for the subject that I was studying. And I never got to finish that. Mm. Think about that all the time. Like if I would have finished that, I I could have written my ticket wherever I wanted to work. Mm -hmm. And I didn't because of financial reasons. Mm. So yeah, that's, that's the big one that haunts me all the time. I think about it all the time Mm. or the, the, the crappy jobs that I've worked since then working in like for insurance companies or coffee shops or sweeping floors at a barber shop for a while. And, you know, just, I had a, one of the jobs that I worked, I was changing a toilet out in a, in a restroom one time mm-hmm. after I graduated thinking about how I, I mean, this is after I dropped out of graduate school, thinking about how like I was touching something that other people have defecated and urinated in. And how that's not what I was supposed to be doing. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's not what I went to school for. Mm-hmm. That's not what I got into like all of this debt for, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the big one. That's interesting. I mean, the way that you talk about community, I think that's a huge one. And as you, you said, it's, it's happening to everybody right now. And um, I, I have an, an association to that. Uh, so I, I teach, right? And I, I teach right. in a school of social work. Um, mm-hmm. so you, you can assume probably a lot of different things about what, what's in there. One of the things that's happening in that, that, and in just probably mental health in general right now mm-hmm. is that people keep on talking about this thing called self care. I hear people talk right. about it on a daily basis and, and that's not an exaggeration or a stretch daily basis. I will hear the term self care anywhere from three to five times. Um, and I don't remember exactly when this was, but I, I was, somebody said to a, a woman, uh, you should Google self care because she was talking about having a hard time being kind of overwhelmed, trying to work a lot, um, because of things like the debt that she had acquired. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then just like the stuff that you need to do right in, in life, like you need to have food, you need, and, and that costs money. If you want to eat well, you know, healthy food, which is nutritious as opposed to like junk food, that's more expensive. It's expensive. Yep. Um, uh, if you want to have, uh, you know, uh, if you want to have a start a family, extremely expensive. If you want to have a pet, that's expensive, right? Like it, it all mm-hmm. takes money, and, and it, it's it's um, hard. And somebody says, you know, well, you should Google self care. 
And she said, no, I know how to take care of myself, actually. Like, I, I, I get that. I, I think I have that part down. I'm, I'm actually so good at it that I can do it on a, on a shoestring budget with not much stuff, right? Like, I, I, I'm good at taking care of myself. What I think would be really great is if we all, like, you know, collectively Googled, how can we take better care of each other? And that's this, this thing about community, right? It, that, that maybe in the past, it, it, my, my recollection of my past is that there was that, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. uh, here's an example, a silly example maybe. But when I was, um, you know, in my teenage years and, and into my, like, uh, just into my, my 20s, I'd say, um, there was a lot of uh, people who would gather at a, at a like, local Denny's, right? Because it was open late and, and it was open all the time. It was open 24 hours. And so you you'd Did just, you live in a small town? I did. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, small-ish. You know? Same. And uh, yeah, you just, you'd go to this place and this is like before you can go to a bar or whatever. And, um, you know, given enough time, somebody else shows up and somebody who you know, and they, they sit down and you start talking about whatever. Um, and, you know, I, I, I can tell you I got jobs that way when I was a kid. Um, I met people who would give me rides to shows that, that you know, I wanted to go because I didn't have a car. I had to, I had to borrow my parents' car to, to get places. And they'd be like, oh, okay, well, if you, I, I can give you a ride, you know, if you can pitch in a little bit of gas money or sometimes not even for that, right? We'll just do it. Um, people would loan me things like CDs and, and comics and books and, and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it was, it was a a real community. It was a thriving community. And, you know, then when I, when I got into politics, right, I started to, when I was, I went to a community college, which was the only thing I could afford. And even though I was never a smoker myself, um, I would go and, uh, hang out with the people who smoked cigarettes whenever we'd have a break because they were much more interesting than people who didn't smoke cigarettes. <laughs> and that's true. Yeah. And so like there was this like little community of the people who smoked, you know, outside and, uh, same thing. Like, um, you know, I'd be like, Oh, Hey, like I, I missed a class. Can you give me some notes? No problem. Like people really did take much better care of each other now when everybody's sort of like, tasked with caring for them, them, their own body, their own mind, their own life. Um, you know, they spend a lot of time trying to look up things on, like hacks or whatever, like shortcuts to life hacks. Yeah. To, to figuring it out. And then they're lonely and alienated and just riddled with anxiety and depression. And, um, and I think all that was there before. Like, I don't want to make it sound like, oh, the, of course, yeah, none of that was there. But you, you, you had it among other people who also had it, and so you were, I don't know, that felt fundamentally different. I would say there is something uniquely bad about our society now, and um, and I think that has a lot to lot to do with atomization and like late capitalism, as they as it's called, right or whatever. I mean, and I know you're you you're a fan of Mark Fisher. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talks a lot about this sort of thing. We live in very atomized, we live at very atomized lives um, through a combination of, you know, destruction of our, uh, of institutions and of uh, communities and just the rise of the easily accessible entertainment through the internet, you know, things like that. You don't have to leave your house. You don't have to, you don't have to see other people anymore to watch new movies. You know, you don't have mm-hmm. to even go to the video store. Like I used to have a relationship with my Blockbuster guy whenever I was younger, you know? Yeah, totally. You see the same people at Blockbuster all the time. So you knew them. They would talk to you. I was in there three or four times a week sometimes, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, 
you don't have to go anywhere to play video games anymore. You, like an arcade. You remember arcades when you were a kid? Definitely. We had this really cool pizza place with an arcade when mm-hmm. I was younger. I used to love to go there. And you got to know the people at the pizza place. Mm-hmm. And that still exists to a very a much smaller extent, but nowhere near the way it used to. And I know that I, I don't like to get into the habit of uh, being nostalgic and letting nostalgia like inform me politically what I think about uh, the, our prospects for the future and what I think about now. But I think that we live in a uniquely bad society mm-hmm. um, and a uniquely bad version of capitalism. Um, not the most repressive version, no, but... Well, not the most violently repressive version, but the most successfully repressive version. I'm quoting Chomsky when I say that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it, it, we it's this is terrible, and it, it's borne out in the fact that we people die from diseases of despair at a rate just totally unprecedented in in uh, modern American history. You know, millennials die from alcoholism and suicide mm-hmm. like, at a rate that's just like it's mind boggling. I kind of went off on a tangent and I lost the thread there. I, no, I think what, you're, I I think you're onto that. something like even with that, it's, it's, you know, people are so fired up about gun control now, um, which is fine. Like I, I have no issue with that, but I mean the, the, a lot of the gun death that we have is suicide, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That, that skews the numbers drastically when you look at like uh, gun deaths and yeah. a lot of people, and nobody takes that into consideration. Right. And so yeah. there, there's this idea then, and, and the, the supposed answer to that is, you know, self-care. <laughs> right, like, right. No, you're you're missing the mark. The answer to that mm-hmm. is taking care of each other. And it's weird when I talk with people about this, and I, there's certain people generally like, I'll call them libertarians, <laughs> you know, who, who get frustrated with this because they're like, oh, you're talking about some sort of like nanny state apparatus, which is, you know, no one's going to have any privacy because everybody's so busy taking care of each other and checking up on you know, what you're thinking and how you're feeling. And like, that's the thought police. And, you know, they're, they're, you're not going to be free to, to do things. You know, it is your, your individual liberty, which is your individual responsibility. And if everybody is set up in a society where like they have maximal freedom, um, and, and they mean freedom as freedom from government and things like that, then everything's going to work out. And, and, um, you know, I, I try to engage those people in, in, not just like argue with them or fight or, or I don't know, like uh, do something unproductive. Right. And, and, and to truly try to say like, no, I, I think you're missing the mark here. I really do think that we can take care of each other and you do run the risk, I think of having people potentially butt their nose into your business a little bit more often than you might be accustomed to or like. But um, uh, I don't think that that's necessarily guaranteed. And I don't think that you can't develop healthy ways of dealing with that, right? Like, I don't think that, that that's, and is that not happening now for Christ's sake? Like, I mean, how, yeah. how much privacy do you actually have currently, man? Um, I don't think it's as much as you seem to think that it is. You have the illusion of privacy, but no actual privacy. So oh, we, I think we have less privacy than any society in the history of the world. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's like, so if we're not, if we already don't have that, then like, how about we at least have, you know, care for each other and, and, and that's better than having yeah. no privacy without that. I don't know if that yeah. makes sense outside my brain. But. No, absolutely. That makes sense to me as well. One of the things that I was thinking of when I was talking about um, community is we have this liberal notion of freedom from religion as being a uh, universal good. And uh, so we've gotten rid of all of our religious institutions mm-hmm. um, on, now we haven't like t- we haven't gotten rid of all of our religious religious institutions, but we've um, 
gotten rid of their importance to society, right? Yeah, I think they've been disempowered for sure. Very much so. But we haven't replaced them with anything. Mm-hmm. So we've got like this very, this, this void that was filled by like your church community would take care of you. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you know, they would, they would look in on you. Of course they would judge the shit out of you on, <laughs> for what you were doing, but at the same time they would like to look out for you, you know, mm-hmm. um, things like uh, fraternal orders or whatever, like the moose lodge or the Freemasons and stuff like that have declined r- drastically. And those, those uh, like, I guess the Freemasons, they have like a home for old Freemasons who mm. can't afford to like live on their own. And if they've been like a Freemason for however long, they get to go to to live in this home and they're taken care of. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a charitable thing. And there was a, a you know, my, my family is Czech uh, of relatively recent immigration within the 20th century. And uh, they were all members of the Slavonic Benevolent Order of Texas or something like that. I think that's what it's called, SBJST, and it's some Czech name. But they, it was like a, you know, a networking group so they could, get together and help take care of each other. And they provided each other with insurance that way to pool mm. their money and have life insurance, home insurance and stuff like that just for check people. And that's all of course gone now. And now it's gigantic companies that, that deal with insurance and everything. But all of these institutions that we had for taking care of each other and looking out for each other, they're all gone now and they've been replaced by nothing. I'm not saying I'm nostalgic for these particular institutions, but I'm nostalgic for the sense of responsibility and community that they engendered. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's part of why I'm a Marxist is because I think that that, that universal brotherhood, sisterhood, whatever, whatever, I don't, I don't want to determine fellowship. There we go. Universal fellowship is something that is intrinsic to the Marxist project. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, I want to see these old institutions that have gone the way of the Buffalo be replaced with ones that we create on our own that are just as integral to our lives. And, uh, that's, I guess we're still talking about ghosts here, Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, I get called a romantic a lot because of, you know, when I talk about my, like, I guess this is sort of nostalgia, sort of a melancholy that, when I think about the things that we've lost and it's not so much that I'm nostalgic for these specific things that we lost so much as I'm nostalgic for the idea of the things that these things used to represent. And that is like community and Mm -hmm. togetherness and looking out for your, you know, like the universal fellowship of humankind. It's, it's interesting you bring that up the the marxist tie-in you know like um i, I i'll talk to people who are are marxist socialists dsa members you know different different yeah things yeah and, and all that right and you know th- there's a bunch of times that i am not in lockstep with what they're they're going for what they're thinking what they're saying how they're saying it, it who knows right um but that's actually what comes along with the community too, right? Like that's that mm-hmm. for me, I think of that as the cost. You know, if you're going to be a part of a community, it's not getting everything that you want. 
it's getting enough of the things that you need. Um, and uh, hopefully also, I think enough of the things that you want to continue to like, you know, invest your time, energy and other resources into the good of the community. That's, that's the promise, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you mentioned earlier my, my, my psychoanalytic tie in, um, you know, psychoanalysis is not like some sort of huge thing anymore. There was a time when it was the dominant paradigm for mental health in the United States, kind of all over the world. And it isn't, it isn't that now, um, insurance companies don't pay for psychoanalysis, there's not a lot of people looking to get psychoanalysis. Usually the people who are are doing so because they want to become analysts themselves because they've mm-hmm. discovered it. Um, but there's a, there's a psychoanalytic community and that psychoanalytic community is, is something that is uh, really important to me because it is a, a community of people who um, really see psychoanalysis as a cause and, and a cause that is worthy um, of committing one's time, energy and, and other resources to and so you you participate in that you participate in the the life of psychoanalysis. Um, I'm, I'm a Lacanian analyst, and so there's there's actually you know the way that uh, Lacan talked about something called a school. He mm-hmm. he wanted to create a school, not a university. There still is the the new Lacanian school, which is this very decentralized kind of institution, which is all over the world now. Um, and the way that you join the school is they they say participate in the life of the school. <laughs> you know, like do things, show up, and I mean, that, that it's really a lot of times stuff like if we're going to have an event, can you help set up the chairs? Um, do you mind uh, bringing the coffee, <laughs> going to get it? Um, things, simple stuff like that. But then, and then obviously bigger things too, like writing papers and editing things, translation work because people speak so many different languages. But this is, well, this is work, you know, to do these things. It's work that uh, provides the people who do it, I think, with that sense of community, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why they keep doing it. And it's really hard. I don't find people doing that, you know, like if they're, you know, into something like CBT, um, cognitive behavioral therapy for people who don't know, um, or for uh, even a, a humanistic and existential therapists don't do this, right? Like it, it's it's just not there. And I think the way you're talking about religious institutions reminds me of that a lot. It's uh, these communities where people are willing to really like throw down and get involved um, and reach for their wallet sometimes too, you know, uh, right, to, right. to do things and help it out. I mean, you don't want to become destitute because of it, but you'll, you'll do what you can. Right. And I mean, that's, I mean, I, for the longest time was a member of a, you know, a small Trotskyist sect. And it was very much that sense of community that I had from, uh, from church uh, growing up right wing sort of fundamentalist Mm -hmm. uh, evangelical uh, Protestant church was replaced by that, like being involved in a small Trotskyist sect Mm-hmm. And uh, I, it, it was, you know, people would look out for you, and they would judge you. They would, uh, <laughs> they would help you, and they would call you out for your, you know, like lack of understanding of some bit of minutia that the sect was keen on making sure that everyone understood. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, it was a sense of community, and you know, they were there for you. They were, uh, and just as soon, as, I mean, and just like you know, when you leave any other community. The ostracization is real, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah, but yeah, that, that I I looked for that and found it in I found this like sort of religious experience and this sense of community in uh, a small Trotskyist sect. You know, now that I don't have that anymore, and I don't have my uh, any of the old institutions that I was a part of growing up, including uh, going to college. That was my community in college. 
and my community in high school and, you know, all of these communities that I was a part of, I, I miss those so much. Mm-hmm. And now I've got, you know, my wife and my cats and uh, my podcast buddies. And that's about it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I still, I have a couple of good friends too, but those are like friends that you see every once in a while and you meet up with for coffee or whatever. And that's not a, it's not really a community. And I miss that. I miss the community. I'm, I'm very nostalgic for that. Mm-hmm. Very much so. And I, I think that I'm not ashamed of that. I know a lot of people are sh- ashamed of their nostalgia and they, they treat it like it's reactionary to be nostalgic about things. And mm. uh, I, I, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, you know, when you're talking about the, the parallel between the church, um, uh, especially like the, the more rigid uh, denominations, right, of, of Christianity that certainly exists right. here in the United States. And then uh, what I'm assuming was a rigid Trotskyist organization. Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I think that's an interesting thing there. One of the things that I notice haunts a lot of people, maybe it haunts you as well, maybe not, is uh, it's a psychoanalytic concept, the, the name of the father. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and so this comes from Lacan, and it's this idea that we want to have some other external to us source of authority, morality, uh, righteousness, etc., uh, that can endorse us, that can can say what we're doing is right, that it's good, that we're doing it the right way, that that's something that tons and tons of people crave. The Lacanian psychoanalytic project, and many, it's a lot of things, but one of the things that it tries to do is to help people become a little bit more aware of the ways in which they are seeking out a name of the Father to validate them, to tell them that they're okay. And, it, and if you want to keep doing that, go ahead. Um, but if you'd rather maybe discover different ways that you might be able to authorize yourself and question and those mm-hmm. sorts of things, that that might also be interesting to you if you want to do it. And and I, I don't know, I think that was really fascinating when you were talking about those two things that, that came to my mind. Well, that's interesting is that like I don't anymore seek that sort of like name of the father, like you said. And I think it's because it's, a conclusion that I came to on my own mm-hmm. that I needed that in my life. And then when I decided that I didn't need it anymore, like I don't need a, a, an authority to tell me uh, what to do, how to believe or anything mm-hmm. like that. And I decided that I'm going to learn how to face the world on my own, which yeah. is interesting. It's, I started reading a lot of philosophy mm-hmm. and <laughs> I got really into the existentialists for a while. And, um, you know, and I decided that, uh, I was going to create my own meaning, mm-hmm. you know, and any kind of relationship that I was going to have to the, the world at large and to any ideas of spirituality and to politics were going to be ones that I negotiated on my own mm-hmm. rather than had, you know, given to me, handed to me somehow. Mm. And, uh, and yeah, I think that I sort of accidentally psychoanalyzed myself and figured that out without even knowing what I was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People often do, right? Like, I mean, there's there's so many ways to get to this. Psychoanalysis is one of yeah. many. Um, but yeah, it's this idea that you you do have to go through it, right? You have to have this strong identification with an authority of some sort. And to, to learn that that uh, idealized authority figure is not, in fact, as ideal as you imagine them to be. If you don't idealize right. them, then you don't get the opportunity to come to the realization that your idealization is imaginary, that it's an image, that it's not, in fact, real. 
and that that's the thing it's 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 funny it's 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 almost like uh circular i guess right like got to be part of this sort of like community with an authority figure at the center of it um and really buy into that perhaps to get to the point where you're like you know this is this is wrong <laughs> um I, what was i thinking uh doing this i can't believe that i kind of like went for whatever it is that they are selling but then what happens is you can kind of come back around and be like but you know what they were onto something <laughs> with this community thing. They right, just, right. It, it, it's, it, it is. It's like you got you to gotta, um, have a home to leave the home to come back home and, and come back to it a changed person who can engage with it on different terms, right? That's, yeah, sort of the way I understand uh, religion, like in general, is that I, I became like the most annoying kind of atheist that you've ever met, you know, whenever I left left the, ch- the church as a child and then uh i went i i, <laughs> I read some books that weren't by the new atheists and mm-hmm. uh about like spirituality and i actually majored in history and minored in religious studies and uh you know i read a lot of about a lot of different religions and about a lot of different conceptions of god and then i you know kind of came back around from atheism to having some sort of conception of god that i found palatable mm-hmm. and that i i sort of accepted and you know moved away from atheism and i came back to the idea of religion and spirituality with a much less toxic mindset <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah so now now i've got like a, a conception of god that some people might not consider a conception of god but i'm not super interested in talking about that but it it took me having to just basically torch it and start over and mm-hmm. then reapproach it with like a, a clean slate in order to be able to to rationalize it and understand it in a way that I I think is uh allows me to appreciate the good things that were there. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense, right? Like um <laughs> I think it, when we're young, you know, there's so much uh, of our identity that we think we choose, but we didn't choose it. It was it was chosen for us, right? Um, yeah, yeah. You know, your your parents gave you a name. They gave you a whole bunch of other things that they just kind of like put onto you like you're this kind of a kid. You're gonna. We're gonna encourage you to do those things. We're gonna discourage you to do these things. Blah blah blah. Yeah. And when you're a kid, you have no choice. Like you just you you kind of got to go with it. Largely, once you get into your your adolescence and early adult life, you you do have a choice. You have you have more options open to you. And you can do. You can take care of yourself as an adult in a way that you can't when you're like eight or what or younger. And so yeah, I think that leads to that that break where people are like, I'm I'm out. I'm done. I'm through. But then what might happen for a lot of people, I think, is they can come back around and they can be like, huh, I think I can do this, but I, I can do it in a way that, that makes more sense for me, right? Like, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not your way. It, I mean, maybe it's partially that, but it's not completely that anymore, right? Like, I'm, I'm engaging on my terms. And I think that that's, that's the, the name. And I think we probably go through this process multiple times, right? Like, it's not just like mm-hmm. you're, you do it once and you're good now. Like, you've arrived, good for you. You know, there's this consistent process of like, um, I don't know, accept this, uh, idealize, um, realize that the ideal is flawed, think that you were a fool, come back around and go like, ah, no, I wasn't as much of a fool as I thought that I was actually. There was, I, it's not ideal, but it's also not terrible, right? Like there's, there's something here. Which is constantly reassessing what it is that we want and what it is that we think is going to make us happy. And sometimes we have to 
torch something and leave it behind and then you look back at it later and go oh wait actually i i needed that <laughs> totally yeah <laughs> you know i that's funny you say that i remember um when i was i i when i i remember how old i was when i did this but like i'd acquired a whole bunch of books on like marxism and anarchism and socialism and a bunch of things and uh at a certain point i was just like none, nothing ever fucking gets done right like you, you go into meetings and you have a bunch of people talking a big game they're not actually doing much this is ridiculous i'm i'm out like i'm through and i i sold all those books to a used bookstore um because i needed some money and that was mm-hmm. you know one way to get some so I do this and, and then, you know, I don't know, years go by and I'm now I'm going to used bookstores looking for copies of those books that I sold to used <laughs> bookstores because I'm like, I remember there was something in that. I should get that again. That's uh, funny. I, whenever I left, uh, the Trotskyist sect that I was part of, I kept all of my old books, but what I did was on my bookshelf, I, um, you know, I put the stuff that I, that I really liked, uh, up at the top of the bookshelf. Like, I'm still keeping all my marks on all of my Lenin, all of my Trotsky, all of my, all of my great thinkers, my Gramsci, you know, all of, all of the, uh, the, the, the canon, right? The big yeah. Marxist canon, right? I keep them those all at the top and then I'll sort of move on from there. I organize them by subject and then by author. And then down at the very bottom, I put all of my, my sect pamphlets and stuff that was written by people that were part of the ISO, which was the sect that I was in. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there was a couple of really good ones that I was just like so disgusted with having like left that organization. I just stuck those down there at the bottom because I didn't want to look at them anymore. And then my roommate's cat peed all over them. <laughs> all of the first, the bottom two levels. Mm-hmm. So I threw them all away. And my roommate was like, oh man, just write down those titles and I'll buy them all for you. And I was just like, don't worry, man. I was all trash. And then whenever I moved recently, I was like, you know what? I was thinking maybe I should go revisit that book because you know what uh that guy actually wasn't so bad some of the things that he had to say i think that i think that i might like i, w- I might want to read that one again and mm-hmm. now of course a cat peed on it and i rejected its, its replacement so yeah i did sort of the same thing but just in a more roundabout way mm-hmm. more punk rock way oh god it smelled so bad <laughs> he, he was spraying it i guess like Ooh. marking his territory or whatever you know yeah but yeah interesting choice yeah. take that trotsky <laughs> no, not even Trotsky. It's the Trotskyists. Yeah. Okay. Fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. The Trotskyists. Because right. I think the, the, Trotsky has some worth, in my opinion. I mean, mm-hmm. I think he was wrong about like a lot of things, but you know, mm-hmm. that, that's a different podcast, I think. Huh. The other, well, the other ghost that you brought up that I think is an, an important one is this this ghost of uh, your university experience, right? Like you Ugh. you apply, you get in, you're accepted, you can do this this study that you want to do. Um, you know, I gonna- did so good on my GREs and my writing sample was awesome, and I turned in. You know, whenever I sat down with my uh, with my major professor, my uh, my mentor, when I got to graduate school, he was praising me for my writing sample and everything. Mm. Yeah. So I was super excited. I was, you know, it was, it was the wide open road to the stars for me, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So can you say more about that though? Like the, what is it about that that haunts you in that? I mean, like I can understand the experience being really, you know, demoralizing and and stuff, but it sounds like there's something more there than just like, I'm, I'm upset by this. I'm demoralized. This seems like it actually like kind of got into you and did something. Well, okay. So the, the circumstances behind me losing my, um, my funding were, and I never knew exactly why I lost my funding. They didn't tell me they should were like, Oh, well, you know, there's budget problems and mm-hmm. you're the newest PhD candidate. So, uh, you know, you, we're just not going to give you funding mm. and you can still continue to go here. That's fine. But you've got to pay out of pocket, which is insane. There's no way I could do that. $60,000 right. a year. Right. Oh my gosh. Right. But so there are a, a few things in my mind, like I'm not, I'm, I'm not certain why, but one was that, one of my, the, the, the department chair who I had a class, a historiography course with was this, uh, one of the preeminent conservative historians, historians of conservatism, uh, in the United States and good friends with Bill Crystal. Uh, you know, he's in, this was in Washington DC. So he runs in these like circles and he assigned to me the topic of, uh, Marx, uh, of Marxist history. And I had to, analyze Marxist historiography and uh, talk about it for a report that I gave to, you know, my cohort. And I, of course, totally disagreed with his presentation of Marxist historiography as being rigid and linear and not willing to take contingency into um, uh, consideration when uh, talking about history and about how Marxists believe that uh, working class taking control and creating socialism and then eventually communism is inevitable. It's a lot of really dumb sort of cold warrior mischaracterizations of Marxism and Marxist historiography. So what I did was I just told him, you know, I, I, whenever I, I presented this to the class, I was like, well, okay, yes, there is a certain school of uh, Marxist historiography that treats this as a historical inevitability and only takes into consideration class forces as the driving mechanism of history and don't take much else into consideration. And we call those the vulgar Marxists and they mostly exist as like, you know, in orbit around the uh, ideas of the uh, Stalinist and sort of post Stalinist, you know, groupings. And I sort of differentiated and I think I went in, I think I made too good of a case Mm. and I think I annoyed him. And I think that that could be one element that led to me not getting funding. Another was that I was going through a divorce at the time. I missed a few classes. I didn't do poorly. I didn't, you know, I didn't drop any of my classes. I didn't uh, get bad grades or anything. But Mm -hmm. I think that I performed less than optimally that semester. And I made sure that all of my professors knew what I was going through. And they all seemed to be, you know, sympathetic. And, you know, I missed a major presentation in one of my courses because I just couldn't bear to do anything because I was going through a divorce and I was incredibly, yeah. So that was one thing. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I lost my funding and I just left. I didn't, I didn't even like really fight for it or anything. I didn't see if there was anything I could do. I just gave up and left. And so that's, there's regret there. Like, wait, what could I have done something? Was it that I was too Marxist out loud in a conservative university? Was it that I just didn't do great because I was going through a divorce and I maybe like pissed my professors off by missing a class or two here and there. So I've got those like the regrets and then maybe I could have done something differently in order to have kept that from happening. And then I wouldn't be like so miserable working all these crappy jobs and I would have my dream profession or whatever. 
mm-hmm. you know, that's, I think what haunts me. That is, that would be hard. <laughs> like, like yeah. not, I mean, that, that's one of those unresolved things that you, 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 it's like the, what if that that you can't ever actually answer it's right. You can think about it a lot. You can have it keep you company late at night, whether you want it to or not. Uh, but you can't give it an, an answer. That's interesting. Yeah. That's, um, you know, one of the, the, the really, it's a very popular word right now in mental health trauma, right? Everybody wants to talk about uh-huh. trauma all the time. And, uh, but I've, I've kind of, uh, I've done this for a while, but when people talk about trauma, I'm like, what do you mean? What, when you say trauma, let's assume that I actually don't have the same understanding that you do or the same, uh, way of thinking about that. Tell me w- what you mean. And a lot of times people can't, but the people who can talk about these sorts of circumstances, right? These circumstances that you can replay in your head ad nauseum. And no matter how many times you replay it, no matter how deeply you think about it, no matter how much you grapple with it and try to, to find the point where it all went wrong or started to go wrong or something, you can't make sense of it. It remains nonsensical in your head. It remains mm-hmm. unmetabolizable. Uh, you 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 just kind of keep it there. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, it, another riff that that comes to mind, and this is uh, something that I learned um, when I. Uh, one of the reasons that I, I do what I do now is when I was younger, I went to a pretty good therapist, and and he he helped me out. Um, and this this therapist that I went to when I was younger used this thing. He talked about emotional bone, uh, which I thought mm-hmm. was really cool. It's like, so if you imagine there's a kid and they're skateboarding and they, they fall out of their skateboard and they land on their arm and they break it and they, they run home and they're like, you know, screaming and their parents rush them to the hospital and the hospital like x-rays, the thing goes, oh, wow, it doesn't look good. And they set it, um, they put a cast on there, they take the cast off after some time and they maybe do a little bit of physical occupational therapy. And now the kid has a scar when they can look at that scar and the scar is a reminder of breaking their bone, but the scar doesn't hurt, right? It's not like the scar causes them active pain in the present. But if you play the situation slightly differently and the kid like hides their broken bone and it heals wrong, not only do they have a scar, but every time they try to use their arm, it hurts. It causes them pain and suffering in the present. And, and maybe one day they'll go and they'll have to like get in there and like re-break the bone and, and set it and help it heal correctly. And the therapist guy who I worked with was saying to me that everybody has these emotional bones. And unlike our physical bones, we can't x-ray them or cast them. And people have had their emotional bones broken badly and they never healed correctly they're just they're just hanging out like in this weird wonky healed wrong configuration um and that part of what good therapy might be is getting in there and like breaking those bones which is never fun it's very hard it's very um emotionally difficult to do that but the reward of doing it is that the person might actually get to the point where that bone can heal correctly and they have a scar but the scar doesn't hurt anymore and that was something that was was coming up as you were thinking about that too i don't know if that has any resonance with well, you in any way no absolutely it does because i think that sorry i'm talking away from the microphone because my cat is down here bothering me so whenever i left graduate school i mean i didn't pick up a book for years like a couple of years i think like mm. i didn't pick up a book to read it and that's no one who knows me knows how abnormal that is for me and then i started picking up novels again and reading those and uh then then i started doing this podcast and it was just like, oh, no, actually, I, I, I joined the DSA briefly for a little bit. And I started a Jacobin reading group with my uh, couple of other people in Austin, Texas. And we were reading Jacobin magazine. And then we started expanding outward and reading some other political stuff. 
But, you know, I, I, I left the, the ISO around the same time I was going through my divorce and around the same time that I was, you know, dropping out of graduate school. So it was this gigantic, like, world-changing uh, ev- uh, sequence of events that happened for me. So I was mm. intellectually just adrift. I, I had no kind of intellectual stimulation at all. No kind of, like, nothing that would force me. And I was just working all the time. Crappy jobs that I hated. Mm-hmm. And uh, I eventually started this podcast again. And one of the things that, you know, Jason, who's, he was like, you know, I want to study this topic and, you know, look into this. And one of the things I started doing was like, I started reading Salvage Quarterly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you read Salvage, but mm-hmm. it's an amazing publication. And I recommend everyone read Salvage. And referencing all these people that I had always heard about whenever I was part of this Marxist sect that, I mean, I got to say, I was, I was a dumb Marxist. Like lots of lots of Marxists, most Marxists that I know are incredibly intelligent and they read a lot and they're very well read. And I think that part of sect life is that it's it's very stultifying. They, 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 they read you read what it is that they want you to read and that's mm-hmm. it. You know, so you, you might be very well versed in this very narrow view of the world. So I didn't read like I didn't read the uh, Frankfurt School people because that was, you know, petty bourgeois. Uh, you don't read that crap. I, you know, and I started reading Walter Benjamin and I started reading, uh, you know, other members of the Frankfurt school. And I started reading, I started reading other people that were, you know, that I would always been told, oh, they're reactionaries, you know, like, because they're, they're, they have like romantic ideas. And, um, you know, I, I, even from there, I started reading sort of actual reactionaries. I've read some terrible stuff. Just because I want to know what people are thinking and what they're saying. And with the rise of the alt-right, I read Julius Evola's, uh, um mm-hmm. this uh, revolt against the modern world. Because, you know, uh, Steve Bannon read it and recommended that everybody read it. Mm-hmm. You know? And so I read it because I wanted to know what it is that people were talking about. You know? For sure. And it was incredibly interesting. I don't recommend everyone do that. But, you know, I th- I, I read so, Nick Land because for, for very similar exactly. reasons. Exactly. I, yeah. I, I read Nick Land also. Yeah. But anyway, so... Uh, I kind of just, I guess that being so disgusted with my sort of intellectual stultification and the the atrophy that was a result of not reading or engaging in any sort of intellectual pursuits for several years, and then hating all the jobs that I was able to get, mm. and uh, was sort of breaking those, re-breaking those bones, and then starting the podcast, and like reading again, and engaging in these discussions again sort of rehealing those bones to now where i think about graduate school it's still a slight twinge but now i'm ready to go back Mm -hmm. but it took me six years to Mm. get to that point where i felt like yeah maybe this is something i could do again like even if it's just so that i can have that degree to put up next to my debt Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) yeah yeah but also i want to teach and i think that i'll have a lot better of a a chance getting a good teaching gig if I have a master's degree finally finished, you know. I'm in the process of trying to get back in. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'm doing. But I think and when you said you're talking about rebreaking and healing those bones, that's exactly what I was thinking of. It's a six year long process of rebreaking and healing that. Yeah, and also for a while it's like sometimes people after they're just not ready to rebreak that bone, right? You know that's Oh yeah, I didn't no not at all. Mm-hmm. It, you, it, you get you get comfortable with the regret and the pain.
I mean, I got to the point where, like, I hated talking about it at first, and then I liked talking about it afterwards. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. like, I liked having like, I would have people tell me, like, Chris, you're so smart, you know so much. Why are you working the front desk in a barbershop? You know, why aren't you doing something where you're writing and reading? I'm like, well, let me tell you all about my sob story. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, yep. it felt good. Oh, yeah, people feel bad for me. That's some jouissance right there. Is that? Yeah, that I know is. it uh-huh. is right. That, exactly. Mm-hmm. I, I know, like a, a little bit about uh, about your field, mm-hmm. and it's incredibly interesting to me. And I want to have you on one day to talk about like Lacan. Oh, that'd be I want, great. I would love to do something like that. It would be a uh, blast for me. I want you, I want you to give us some stuff to read about Lacan that we might understand, <laughs> and then we could talk about it. Oh yeah, for sure, man. Yeah. You know, you bringing that up, and I mean, we're not doing it now, but if there's ever anybody who's listening to this who's interested in Lacan and you want a good place to start, um, I would recommend uh, Bruce Fink is a guy who writes secondary sources. He's uh-huh. uh, you know he he's alive today. Uh, he's really, really good at taking these difficult Lacanian concepts and rendering them in a way that most, um, I don't know, English-speaking people can understand uh, and understand without doing massive amounts of heavy lifting. Uh, you have to do some, but you don't have to do massive amounts of it. And uh, uh, Some is good. Yeah. So he wrote a book. Um, I teach it because I, I think it's really good. It's just called The Fundamental Concepts of uh, Lacanian Psychoanalysis. Uh, there's another one. I'm, I'm reading it now. It looks like this. Um, it's called Lacan on Love, and it's really, really good. Um, I really, really like it a lot. So those would be just uh, two off the top of my head kind of good starting points. And then I can, I'm sure, think of some other things that would be good, too, and send those your way in an email or something. All of Lacan that I understand is through Zizek. I, I like Zizek a lot. I think that, I mean, he's incredibly problematic uh, in, on so many levels uh, for so many different reasons. And... You know, I think he's great mm-hmm, for sure. Um, uh, just like any any figure worth thinking or talking about, it's going to have his, you know, baggage. Yeah, yeah, that's so weird. I have, I have I'm tempted to kind of go deeper on that, but I'll, I'll resist that and save that for a different podcast, different day. Um, One of the things I think is super interesting is that like how many Lacanians are incredibly far left. Oh yeah, and I don't know if it if it if if all Lacanians are like if you have to be a leftist to be able to appreciate Lacan, but uh, you know I mean there's Zizek and then there's Badu, and uh, those are the two that I know of, mm-hmm. and all of Badu that I know is political, but I know he throws his Lacanian references in when talking about his politics, and you know I had a buddy a while back who went to college and studied under some in a philosophy department that was real big on Badu and Lacanian psychoanalysis as part of their philosophical program. Mm. Right. And so he became this like Maoist that was super into Lacan Mm. and uh, he called himself Lacanian, Lacanian Marxist. Mm -hmm. I was just like, okay, that's a thing. You know, back then I didn't really know anything about it, but apparently, yeah, it is. Um, But uh, I, you know, I have another friend that calls himself a Freudo Marxist. (laughs) (laughs) That's that is actually so. Um, I don't know the, how how interesting this will be, but um, you know, in the world of psychoanalysis, there's different schools of thought, right? So you right. have like ego psychology, you have self psychology, you have classical Freudian analysis, um, and Lacanian analysis is another um, flavor that that exists. It seems to me, um, and I've, I have references that would back this up, 
that Lacanian psychoanalysis worldwide is the most uh, currently practiced form of psychoanalysis that there is. Um, however, within the United States and within like Canada, within North America, it is not. And uh, one of the places where it's practiced very, very heavily is Latin America. Um, I have a couple of friends who are from Argentina, and they talk about um, everybody goes to see an analyst. They, they, the way that Americans go to see a dentist, that's what people there do with, with a Lacanian analyst usually. Um, that sounds nice. For sure. Um, yeah. And, and the same thing in, in Europe, of course, uh, Lacanian analysis is, is much more prevalent and known, I would say, than it is here in the United States. And so I was, I was talking with one of the guys I know from Argentina and I was, uh, I just off the cuff asked, you know, why do you think that is like, what, what is it? And he said, you know, a lot of times people get to Lacan through Freud. Um, uh, sometimes people get to, to Freud from Lacan, but either which way he said that, that he, and this guy was really interesting because he was born and, you know, grew up in Argentina and spent a lot of time in Italy because his parents, like one parent was from Italy and the other parent was an Argentinian. I've got a friend who is of Italian extraction from Argentina. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a big a lot of a big Italian uh, population there for whatever reason. Yeah. So so interesting, right? So he, yeah. he spent time in Italy and he spent time then in Argentina, um, and you know he speaks English fluently. He speaks uh, fluent Italian, Portuguese, and Spanish. And I'm so jealous of people that do that. Yeah, me too. It's, it's amazing. Our stupid country doesn't teach us anything. Mm-hmm. So he, he was like when I'm high school Spanish, he, he mentions when he's in Italy that people read Freud and they read Lacan as philosophers. Like, he's right, like, right. That that's what they're seen as there, right? They're, they're read uh-huh. as that way. And uh, he said, when I go to Argentina and other Latin American countries, Brazil, um, places around there, um, Lacan and Freud are read as revolutionary political thinkers, right? That's that's the things that people bring to it. They they read about Freud writing about repression, and this gets equated to political oppression, right? They hear uh, the things that um, Lacan is writing about, and again, it's very easy to kind of like put this into the lived political experience within um, their their lives. He's like Americans read freud as a doctor it's interesting when you think about uh freud and lacan not being viewed as political figures in the united states or as you know revolutionary figures in the united states i think that has a lot to do with the fact that we we tend to think of mental health as an individual concern mm-hmm. right yeah so if definitely. you're writing about mental if you're writing about mental health you're writing about something that only affects the person whose mental health is in question it's not like a community thing it's not like a yeah, yeah. social thing it, and yeah, you know it's interesting you bring that up. I don't know if you're you're super well versed in this or even remotely. Uh, Felix Guattari, um, who you know was a big guy at Laborde, which was a, a therapeutic community, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, with Deleuze, he come he write, writes anti Oedipus and a thousand plateaus, and you know are, they're they're like the progenitors of this style called schizoanalysis. Well, right, right. Felix Guattari was a student of Lacan's, uh, and I mean like a a very uh, integrated uh well like spent a lot of time with lacan i mean he would drive him places he would he would like he he was like lacan's guy well and, i'm not super familiar with them but yeah i know that they uh, yeah I, I i know that they represent an important um place on the left mm-hmm. and that the post-marxist left yeah yeah it's it's that's one of those things where uh, i mean one of the the cool things uh, a lot of lacanians that i know anyways are fairly dismissive of, of Guattari, but I, I think he's got some really interesting 
thoughts about um, how to take psychoanalytic ideas and bring them into the institution, bring them into a community, bring them in, take them outside of just like a consulting room and, and bring them into the, to the wider world. And I think there's a lot of value in, in thinking about that and talking about that and considering that kind of stuff. Um, you might not agree with the way that Guattari thought it should be done, but the project itself is definitely not, you know, useless in any way. It's really, really interesting. I mean, I like reading people I disagree with. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know. Definitely. But no, I mean, that's that's why I started reading the Frankfurt School is because, you know, I would always, I was always been, I was always told that there's nothing to offer there. You know, there's nothing good there. Don't read the Frankfurt School. They're all pseudo Marxists. They're all you're basically just liberals. This oh. is not true. I mean, there's there, there's some truth to that, mm-hmm. like, especially in the later Frankfurt School. But like, uh, there's a lot of good stuff there. Definitely. And, my favorite of mine being Walter Benjamin. Uh, love the guy. I think mm-hmm. he's great. Yeah. I love but, Benjamin uh, and, and Marcuse. Yeah. Yeah. Marcuse, the, the best of the Frankfurt school. And I guess sort of Benjamin's only peripheral to the Frankfurt school. He gets lumped in with him though. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that's why I started reading them because I wasn't supposed to. I, I read a lot of stuff that like would have been uh, considered, you know, stuff that was not worth reading whenever I, got out of the my Marxist sect, my uh, Trotskyist sect anyway. Mm-hmm. And just because, I mean, even going so far as to read uh, a bunch of other stuff by like some pseudo-fascists and reactionaries and stuff, just to know what they're thinking and what, what they're, they're talking about. And it, it made me really uh, sort of come to understand, I, I think I, I understand the impulses behind fascism a lot more now. And mm-hmm. I think that like in a way that you never would be able to if you didn't actually engage with the source material on its own. Oh, definitely. And uh, I think that's valuable. Mm-hmm. And uh, unlike, and I think that a lot of people think that if you engage with stuff that you don't, that you're not going to already agree with, like the words are going to get inside of you and turn you into the thing that you're trying to understand instead of actually, you know, like it, you won't be able to resist the urge to become a fascist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or the urge to become pet, petty bourgeois mm-hmm. because you'll, you'll read the words and they'll get in your brain. Mm. And of course, it it, it it belies like a. Uh, I mean, it illustrates a really deep distrust for people. Yeah, yeah. Make their own decisions. I, yeah. the, Gramsci was the one who I think helped me understand that stuff more than anything I, I ever read about it. Right, like because and I think what he did, and it's been a long time, mind you, but uh, I think Gramsci was you know from jail seeing fascist Italy. Yeah, and, and he he really said, you know what? I'm not going to assume that people are doing this because they're dumb. Uh, I'm going to assume that there are reasons that people do the things that they do, and I'm going to try to figure out what those reasons are and uh, think them through, you know, rigorously. Uh, think through what is it that gets people to go like, you know what? Let's try fascism. Right. That seems like it might be a good idea. I think that, that Gramsci's uh, ability to do that, his ability to, to kind of like go like, no, this, this got purchase in, in the hearts and minds of people. There's something happened here. There's a reason for it. And he, he really, I love the way that he was able to kind of like engage with that um, without, you know, buying into it, uh, without thinking like, oh yeah, like nah, I'm, I'm sold now too, <laughs> right? It, it's, right, right. It's, um, it, he, he engaged with it and understood it and then was able to actually critique it and critique it from a place of being informed about it, mm-hmm. um, having thought about it, having considered different elements of it, uh, and and that makes his critique so powerful, right? Um, as opposed to just somebody who's being like, "That's dumb." <laughs> 
it is dumb. You're not wrong to say that, but like that's not much of a critique, you, you know. Um, no, it's not. Uh, yeah. to, or it's it's evil, right? Which is like, yes, true, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't help us understand it or why it's successful. Yeah, that's that the dialectical pessimism stuff kind of coming full circle here, right? Like you got to look into the darkness a little bit, I think, right? Um, Absolutely, uh, yeah. If you don't, if you're not willing to do that, and it's not fun, it's not comfortable, it's not easy to do that exercise. Uh, and the value in doing it, though, is that you're you're able to understand the darkness differently, right? Like you're, it's it takes on a different tenor character. Uh, you have a different relationship with it, um, and you can maybe. I think be a little bit more attuned to, to the fact that within every single one of us, there is a fascist, right? Um, we have fascist impulses. doesn't mean that, that, that um, for many people, I don't think they come out, but under the right circumstances, they could. Um, and if you've, you've engaged with that, um, you're, I think you're more equipped to prevent yourself from falling victim to your own inner fascist. I think one of the things that I think that I've come to really appreciate and embrace is like a, a a romantic streak that I have mm-hmm. um, um, and that in read, I was always, you know, I was always taught to just like tamp that down and push it away because that's fascist. You know, romanticism is reactionary. It's fascist. You shouldn't have this like longing and nostalgia for the way things used to be. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't do it. It's bad. Um, and then, you know, I read and I came to understand the role that romanticism plays in fascism is a role that's similar to what romanticism plays in Marxism. And that is this longing for something that has been lost, like a deep sense of something that used to be there that's gone now. Mm-hmm. And what fascism, fascism's longing for things of the past, just like social orders and, you know, the greatness of a race or a nation and the way that this uniformity of the, the people around you um led to you know a a strong community and you know blah blah blah, everything else and in marxism it's like similar in that we we have a, a romanticism for a lack of Social order. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. for like a the, the primitive communism that Marx talks about, right? Mm-hmm. Where we had complete equality, and that that's a romantic streak that's in Marxism. We talk about the you know, unspoiled countryside. That's not something that like Marxists are romantic for. Yeah. For uh, you know, the community that existed in pre-capitalist life that has been ripped apart by proletarianization. That Marxism doesn't try to recreate. But it says it wants to create a better society where those human impulses are reintegrated, right? Mm-hmm. And where we can re- fully realize human potential by getting rid of this, like, these divisions and this uh, sort of atomization that exists because of capitalism. And those are all romantic impulses. Yeah. And I think that, like, a lot of Marxists will just say, no, Marxist, Marxism is a, uh, it's a purely futuristic 
ideology and that romanticism is reactionary and you should eschew that. And because mm-hmm. romantic, romanticism is fascist. So by coming to understand the romanticism that is inherent in fascism, it helped me understand that Marxism has a lot of that same romanticism. It's just that we want to harness it to build a free and equal society instead of one that where we reestablish, you know, brutal hierarchies. Yeah. I, well, I don't know how, how deep I want to go with this. Um, there's a d- d- Lacanian concept, psychoanalytic concepts again here. Um, early on in Lacan, he, do, he does, you know, this thing called, well, he does it through his whole life. Um, that's called the seminar, right? And you can actually buy um, ed- editions of this, right? So like each year he picked a topic and for an entire year he would do a seminar on that topic. Seminar seven is his seminar on ethics. In that seminar, one of the things that he talks about is Antigone. Uh, he talks about how t- Antigone is a, a figure that has a loyalty, a fidelity to this thing called Das Ding, the thing. And what he, he uses her as an example of is what happens uh, when people have this extremely high level of fidelity to the thing. They will literally destroy themselves for it. Other examples of people who had this would be um, you know, Jesus Christ. Socrates, these are examples mm-hmm. of people who, who have this thing that they're willing to truly destroy themselves for. And there's an enjoyment in it, right? There's a deep enjoyment in destroying yourself, committing yourself um, to something, and then kind of like dying for it in a martyr-type way. Uh, that was my first thought was the Chris, early Christian martyrs. Mm-hmm. The highest achievement of, Christian, of being a Christian and to the early Christians was to achieve martyrdom. Right. And, and yeah. the fascist, I think, is somebody who has a fidelity to, to a dusting, right? Like that, that's the thing. Like they will, and, I mean, they will burn the earth for it, right? Like there, there's, there's no sacrifice that is too, too much, too great, too profound. Um, uh, they will, they will go to the, to the end for it. And one of the things that you can do sometimes is, is, uh, when you're neurotic, you can kind of like break dusting up into these manageable, th- manageable, I guess you'd call them segments. Uh, Lacan calls them la petite object A, uh, the small object A. And these are things that you, you seek, you, you can acquire them. You can actually get them, right? Like dusting is, is not really something that you can acquire. It's like, even if you create like justice, you won't create the, the, the maximal amount of it. It's impossible. Even if you have the revolution, whatever that means to you, right? Like after the revolution, everything's not going to be groovy all the time, right? You're, you're still going to have problems ultimately. And, but you, what you could do is you could get parts of the revolution. You could get parts of something. You could actually acquire them. You could actually live your life in a way that makes something happen, something good. And that'll give you like a, a spike, you know, of, of, oh, I feel really good about myself. That was fun. Uh, but then it will wear off. Mm-hmm. And you'll be like, but now what? You know, and you'll just kind of like find yourself in this orbit where you're constantly repetitively chasing the next object, ah, right? Where, where you, you always find yourself being satisfied by the next thing as opposed to the thing. And that that's actually a really healthy way to be. And oh. I, think, I, I think that that's um, a good example of what like Gothic Marxism is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's a going like, you know what? I'm not really going to ever like get the thing that I want more than anything. So I'm going to get some things that I enjoy and I'm going to enjoy them and then I'm going to want something else, <laughs> you know, and I'll be careful about it because that can go off the rails really easily if I'm not careful about it. And I, I can start going for dusting instead of object. Ah, and if that happens, I'm kind of in trouble uh, ultimately. So anyway, that was, that was my uh, Lacanian riff on that. 
You know what? Actually, um, though, I was going to say we've been talking for like an hour and a half at this point. So what oh, I was going to going to suggest here, maybe and we haven't talked about specters, right? We haven't talked about things from the future that get there. I would propose that maybe we sit down again uh, at some point in the future and maybe have a great conversation about that. Would you be all right with doing it in that way? Because I think yeah, if we try absolutely. to slam it in now, it's going to get not enough time to really be right. developed, you know? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, is there anything that you want to talk about that you're up to? Like, where can, if people are interested in the projects that you're engaged in, where would they go to find those things? Um, how would they uh, listen to the regrettable century and whatever else you want to plug, talk about, well, make people aware of? Well, we're on um, all the pod hosting sites or you know, we're any podcatcher you have, we should be available on it. And if we're not, please let me know. You know, we, we, uh, we host on, um, Buzzsprout and we primarily like our, our go-to is always iTunes because people, that's the one that people use the most. So you can find us on there. You can find us on Spotify. We're on there as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, we have a Twitter, which is grand radio abyss. Um, and we've got, uh, and, or you can just search for the regrettable century and we'll pop up on Twitter. We're on, um, Instagram, but I don't ever update it. Mm-hmm. Just a, a photo every once in a while of, you know, that says, Hey, new episode posted. And then we're also on Facebook as well. Um, just search for the regrettable century. And, uh, we try to do biweekly episodes and we try to at least upload an episode or two onto our Patreon, which is, the regrettable century uh $2 on our patreon so it's you know we want you to go in with low expectations of how frequently we're going to post and just know that the $2 is you know for the regular podcast and anything we throw out there for free it's just a bonus you know for sure on the patreon (laughs) because we do not update that with any regularity Mm -hmm. um and i maybe just let's talk about the fact that we're network that's right network comrades mm-hmm. you know and uh um we're going to have a, a website yeah yeah we can, we're it's in it's in the works right now the lost horizons network where you can uh which includes the regrettable century from 78 and red library and mm-hmm. we're going to be look out for us to be doing some collaborations together like more stuff like this and like i mentioned i would like to have you on our podcast and Adam's been on our podcast a couple of times before, Mm -hmm. or actually we kind of were on his podcast, but we posted on both feeds. Anyway, moving forward, there's going to be a lot more stuff like this. And then like we're planning on doing some round tables or Mm -hmm. jam sessions or whatever they're going to be called, where we get all three podcasts together, as many people from each podcast as we can to just talk about whatever. And, uh, you know, that's going to be coming out. So people should be looking out for that soon as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that's it. Uh, yeah. I remember the, the working title for that, that podcast is something like, uh, well, here we are still after all. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's actually what we're going to use, but that was the one that our last uh, conversation people were like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting um, and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, um, the Lost Horizons it's be Network. Something. Lost Horizons Network, which... You know, I was just listening to your first episode where you were talking about the horizon mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, having someone from the past tell you standing at your horizon, what they can see over theirs and mm-hmm. then moving forward. And, uh, you know, I wasn't even thinking of it in that sense, 
but the, I was thinking of it in a political sense, where we're utopian horizons that, right, right. that we're that we're trying to see that are no longer there. But uh, also, just you know, because you're you're good with your whole <laughs> psychoanalytical thing. It's just talking to people about what they see from uh, across their horizon that you can't see, mm-hmm. and their perspectives on that, and how they can inform you with a. Uh, their views of the world of the past and present. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's actually I, I, that a cool just way to think about it. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's weird because I mean, when you think about it that way, we lose horizons all the time, right? You know, people, yeah. people die. Um, and then they can't tell you what they see over the horizon anymore. Yeah. Um, it's important, I think, to, to talk to people about that, to have those kinds of conversations where it's like, you know, you've you've been around longer than I have. Tell me what you know, uh, or like you're going to be around longer than I am. <laughs> Please tell me what you see. Uh, yeah, it's it's an important exercise. Uh, probably don't I don't I don't do it as much as I feel like I should, um, but I try to do it as much as I can. I mean, when we read our we read old philosophers, you know, when mm-hmm. we read read Marx, the utopian horizon that Marx says is like inevitable or like not inevitable. If not inevitable, then like. Im- highly plausible or whatever that Marx is talking about is, is, a, is a horizon that has been lost to us at this point. We're gonna, we have to try to figure out some kind of new horizon to look towards uh, using ideas that the people that came before us had, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, reading, uh, the, the most depressing is to read like, you know, the early Bolsheviks, mm. you know, and what the optimism they had about the future before they were like you know rounded up and shot in the back of the head in the, some dank cell in you know Moscow mm-hmm. uh, in the name of socialism right right and uh, those horizons being lost are uh, incredibly depressing to think about but also that those horizons can become our horizons mm-hmm. uh, anyway yeah sorry I'm, I'm starting us on another episode yeah, that's great. That's great. I think it'll yeah. be really fun. So that's uh, people can find that at losthorizonsnetwork.com. Um, uh, Regrettable Century is an incredibly uh, good podcast. I, again, if you're if anything that has been said on this caught your attention, you should really go and listen to their episodes. They're really, really, really good. Um, uh, I am from 78. This is Chris from the Regrettable Century. Thank you very much for listening to us as we talked a little bit about what we can see over our respective horizons.